Um, we are we are speaking with Loki Mahalan. Loki is a is an award winning film award winning film director. And I gave you guys homework this on the last show. I, I told y'all I was like, okay, this is homework. I need y'all to watch about four different um, documentaries, and he did. And now he's also doing a podcast called The Uncomfortable Truth. Everything is awesome. And his mom, what tops everything off is that his mother is, he's also the son of the infamous Joan Trumphauer. Did I say her name right? Mahalan. Who is she? She is the white woman that you saw at the Jackson, Mississippi, Woolworth civil rights counter. So if anything, anybody has ever visited the um, African-American Museum, um, that particular museum has a, a replica of the counter. She was the white woman along with Annie, what's her last name? Annie Moody. Annie Moody that was sitting at the counter. Beautiful woman and she's, and I'm just so excited that you're on the show. So guys, please welcome Loki Mahalan. Yes, thank you. Welcome to the show, Loki. I appreciate it. <laughs> So because this is a genealogy show, we wanted to touch a little bit about the work that you've done. And looking at The Uncomfortable Truth, it was just amazing to see how you have done your family research, traced some lines all the way back to Jamestown. How did you even get into to that kind of a journey? Well, it was interesting because, you know, when I did the film, when I when actually I started the film, <laughs> I don't know if I should say this or not, but the original title of the film was actually uh, Why You Are Racist and Didn't Even Know It. And... Mm. It was more about you know the, the, the history of institutional racism in America, um, and I, I just really felt like at that point when I, I was writing the script, I'd been working on it, and just really felt like it wasn't going anywhere. It wasn't adding anything new that that you, you weren't hearing anywhere else, like in a BuzzFeed video or wherever. Mm -hmm. And I actually called my mom, just said, you know, I'm just not going to do this, you know, and oh, you know, she's a mom, you know, she's oh, you work so hard on it, blah blah. We had already done our interview with Luvon, Luvon Brown at that point. Um, and I said, well, I'll, I'll think about it. So, you know, I, I, I just prayed on it. And I, I remember distinctly, I was um, walking down the street with my wife on an evening walk. And, and uh, the Holy Ghost just said, check your family history. And when that happened, the story my grandmother used to tell us, which is what we lead with in the movie, the, what we call the 100 slave story, uh, came back to me instantly. And uh, just in a flash, I could see the entire film, you know, played out in front of me. And I turned to my wife and said, the movie's done. Um, wow. But the next day, I, I, I kept on dwelling on that. But then the next day uh, on another walk, uh, just, I, I do a lot of thinking when I walk. <laughs> I do a lot of walking <laughs> when I think. Um, you know, it was like, no, that, that's a check your family history. That wasn't a check. That was a memory. And that began the adventure of really diving in, um, you know, into our family history. Now, um, you know, with, with uh, you know, I live in Utah uh, now. I've been out here for 20 years. I'm a Latter-day Saint, um, you know, convert to that church. And so doing family history, you know, it's kind of our thing anyways. But um, I hadn't really dived, dived too far into that. And so this became this big journey. And fortunately, my aunt, my, my mom's sister had already done a lot of family history and that revealed 
to us this character in the story named that we call her Aunt Mary through the story. Her name is Mary Harris. Um, but that was one of the former enslaved um, people that um, that ends up being who actually really stayed. And it's, you know, I don't want to give too much away. Into, I don't know how much we should give away in, in this and who's, who's seen the film and so forth. But um, that's where it started. And digging around and, and trying to find these different uh, societies like the Chandler Family Society and so forth and, and diving back into and, and unveiling that you know, we had gone all the way back to Jamestown um, in 1610. He, and, and he was actually uh, stolen off the streets of London and sold mm. in indentured servitude and shipped to, uh, you know, to Jamestown. Because he was nine. He was nine years old at the time, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. And um, at that point then, you know, when he was, uh, you know, freed from indentured servitude, you know, he earned that, um, you know, passage there that he, he would go on to marry. And I think probably like George Washington, you know, ended up, you know, marrying a rich person who already, um, I believe, owned two plantations. And I, I think part of it was the, they actually owned most of Hampton Road area, as a matter of fact, um, down in that region in Norfolk. Wow. I grew oh, up yeah. down there. <laughs> our, gene our genealogy keeps rubbing shoulders all across Virginia, it sounds like. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so before I, before I ask my next question, I just wanted to let our audience know that I think all of your documentaries are available on Amazon Prime. Is that correct? Yeah, correct. Yeah, that's right. So if you, if you haven't checked them out already, because um, we are going to be referencing them throughout the show, you can find Loki's um, his documentaries, which, as Donya said, have won awards on Amazon.com plus your Spotify uh, podcast. Exactly, and I'm just gonna say this: um, we're, we're, what, what, what is it that they say when uh, when you might be telling a story, you might be giving away some stuff? What is it? Uh, what kind of? It's an alert. Oh, spoiler, oh, spo alert. Oh, spoiler, spoiler alert. alert. Yeah, because I'm going to talk about it. And y'all know me. Y'all know, <laughs> know me. I'm going to talk about it. I gave y'all your homework. So yeah, sure I'm letting you know now. It's going to be a spoiler alert. <laughs> so the next question is just for me to get a chronology straight in my head. So you, right. had, you, you start your stories with two very powerful, but very simple little stories. What came first, the gummy bear incident or you finding out that your mother was so active in the civil rights? Oh, gosh. No, I knew about my mom for years. Okay. Uh, you know, because that, that, that documentary called An Ordinary Hero was done in 2011. And, and because of that sit down I had with Luvon when I interviewed him, um, what he said in that interview became a catalyst to create the uncomfortable truth. Um, and I just, you know, Levon and I had met just a couple of months earlier at the 50th anniversary of the Freedom Rides down in Jackson. This is 2011. And uh, we hit it off. I mean, I just, I love that he was just going toe-to-toe -to -toe with my mom, I think, in particular. Um, and, you know, him and I have the same sense of humor and everything else. Just, just there's this, you know, this connection. And it's very interesting in, in just in and of that is that, um, you know, I don't remember if Levon says this in the film, but my mother is the first white woman he ever trusted. Yeah, he did say that in the film. Uh, yeah, I, I probably should watch my movies every now and then. Because um, <laughs> that was a really powerful statement because he yeah. didn't hold any cut cards. He said more than once, I grew up not trusting white people. Right. And it's interesting because when I actually have a board member who is a, a white gentleman who actually went to an HBCU. And 
he was watching the film. This is before the film came out. It was a rough cut. And about halfway through, he calls me up. He says, oh, gosh, I don't know. I don't know. This, this, you know, Levon, I don't know if people are going to connect. I don't think they're going to get it. Because it's, he's really kind of actually, you know, kind of rubbing me the wrong way. And I said, just keep oh, watching. Wow. Just keep watching. But you see, for me, that's really frustrating because naturally I would think that because of my skin tone. My question would be, well, why? Why did you grow up not trusting white people? What was it in your history or your community's history that would make you feel that way? But I can see where, you know, if you're a bit sensitive on the whole subject of racism, because he is very direct. He so is. He is. <laughs> he grew up. I mean, he's in Mississippi. I mean, it's, it's you know, uh, he, was, he was 11 years old when Emmett Till was killed in 1955. Um, you know, he, had, he went through a lot and experienced a lot. He also didn't trust a lot of black people either because of, of you know, of, of, of his of his years growing up and stuff too. So I mean, it wasn't just white people, but but in particular, um, that that element of race was there because of what he went through under Jim Crow and segregation, and what he saw happen to his grandmother and and, and so mm -hmm. forth. And he's 16 years old and he's thrown in the you know, you know on a prison farm for goodness sakes. Um, you know, for the most absurd reasons. I think my thing is, is that I don't see why people wouldn't connect to him if they didn't listen to his story. Well, right. But so his fear was, is that you might lose people, you know, white people. Um, okay. Very early on, because he says, well, I don't like white people. Right. And those sort of things. And, and the thing he's the things he says very early on become, you know, sound very strident to white people. This is the angry black man. I mean, he is like the epitome of the angry black man to white people. By the time you get beyond that halfway point, you start to understand that connection because now we're moving into what's taking place today and how we're all downstream of the past. So suddenly you start to agree with them. And, and, I, and that's what I'm getting from a lot of people. Um, you know, I get a lot of emails, uh, you know, Facebook messages and, and the like, from, particularly from white people who are saying, I had no idea that this was going on. I, I had no idea that this was what the real history was. Um, and you know, I don't blame them because it's just not taught in school. But, uh, but, the, but, but having Luvon explain it in that fashion and then seeing you know, my family's story and that connection to it, and particularly my mother and how she fits in that equation of you know, changing, changing the course of our family history, you know, from this slaveholding past into this, you know, growing up under segregation with a grandmother who was a, you know, mother who was a staunch segregationist and then becoming this, you know, uh, civil rights icon. Well, keeping with that, before I ask you to yeah. relay the what I call the gummy bear incident on yeah. Facebook, um, I there's think a lot of there's a lot of those. I think the story that you shared about your mother when she was a young girl, I think she was about nine or 10, mm -hmm. being dared or losing a bet and having to walk through the black section of town. Well, right. Please say it right. Going through nigger town. Because I, I, right. we, we okay. you know, I'm, I'm with it. Go, yeah. you, you know, going through nigger town because that's what it was called. That's what it was called. And, uh, that's what it was called. Um, I think what she experienced dovetails perfectly to, to what you've just been, been talking about. Yeah. So could you share that, share that story with the audience? Yeah. So, um, you know, every summer, so they lived in Virginia, in Northern Virginia, in Arlington, and they would drive down every summer, her, her folks and her sister. 
um, down to Georgia, which is where her mother's grandmother lived. And my grandfather was um, from Iowa. And he, he was the only foreigner in the family in my grandmother's, in my grandmother's side because he was a Yankee. And they never actually ever called him by his first name. He was always known as Mr. Nelson, even to his in-laws. Oh, wow. Striking. Um, so they went down there that summer. And this is, uh, this is the summer of about 51. Um, and my, you know, there was a rule that you can't go beyond the Coca-Cola bottle. They called it the Coca-Cola bottling plant. It really wasn't the best, but they just called it. Um, and you definitely couldn't go into the Black Quarters. Um, which was you know, down the road across the tracks, you know, literally type thing. And so sure enough, um, on a dare from her friend Mary, they go, my mom and, and Mary. And when they go into the Black Quarters, they, my mother said it's so striking to her because um, people just seem to disappear, right? Uh, you know, the, the African-Americans would hide behind their, their laundry, behind their, their houses, you know, close the doors, close the shutters, you know, whatever it was, no one wanted to be seen seeing these two little white girls. Now, when you consider that just a few years before that, I think, what was it, 1944 or so, that just up the road in South Carolina, um, you know, George Stinney was electrocuted as a 14-year-old black boy, mm -hmm. right? So, so this is very real in the community that, you know, all that has to happen is you have to, all you have to say is if something happened to my mom, let's say she disappeared, her and Mary disappeared. And, you know, police are, of course, they're going to instantly go into the black quarters and say, all right, well, you know, and someone says, oh yeah, I saw them. Well, I bet you did. Now we got a lynching, right? Yeah. Um, that's all that's needed because that plays into the, uh, you know, in, into the narrative of the black beast rapist, right? Um, that whites have. And so, but what, but what she they stop at the schoolhouse and she sees this one room shack. She said there wasn't a lick of paint on it. No glass in the windows. It was on stone piles. Uh, the out, outhouse, you know, out backs, pot belly stove. She said there was a, a, a hand pump and, you know, you could, you know, ladle the water out of a, basically a trough from the hand, hand pump. But this was in stark contrast to a brand new brick school with the white students, this kind of post-World War II brick school which is actually still the nicest building in Oconee, Georgia today. Now it's, a, it's an old folks home. So I guess many of the kids who want to go to school there are now actually, you know, living in the old folks homes. And she just said, you know, it just rattled her soul. And it, this, I, you know, separate but equal was, was not equal. And that this was, she, she said, she said to herself, this is wrong and I'm going to do something about it. Because when you relay the story, the image that flashed through my head was like those 1950s, 19, you know, yeah, 1950s black and white Western TV shows like Gunsmoke or The Big Valley, where, you know, the villain comes in, you know, the gunslinger comes into to town and all the right. good town folk literally just vacate the streets, just right. literally run run for cover that's really the sense out. that I, yeah exactly and that's really the sense that i got when you were relaying just this this yeah. really short seemingly innocent little story about two girls walking through and i get it because if anything had happened to them mm -hmm. anything at all all hell would have broken loose so, exactly in particular but imagine the power that two little 10 year old white girls had embodied in their whiteness hmm against all these adults don't even consider the kids just the adults that the power that they had and they didn't even know it and yet 
I think there's a certain element that you just knew societally, um, you know, that 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 was there. And so you so you so it's imprinted upon you. And so then, like Levon talks about, I, I think he says this in particular in an ordinary hero, but that, you know. As a black person, you know, you never wanted to be around a white woman in the South because you never knew when it was what was going to set them off. Is what he says. Yeah. Says, suddenly, I could, you know, piss off this white woman. You know, excuse my French, but that's, I'm just quoting. You know, I, what if I suddenly just pissed off this white woman? You know, that uh, you know she had all these things in her, in her in her power to do me in, and I and he said, you know, and I, I'd have nothing, nothing I could do about it. And that's what we saw with Emmett Till. You know. Um, the, the the only thing we we completely you know that we know definitively what happened with Emmett Till was that he did whistle. Uh, there's nothing else beyond that, and that wasn't even in the store. That was when she walked out of the store, Carolyn Bryant. So, um, you know, all of that is just you know these these white tears, and we see that in Central Park with uh, Annie Cooper, I think her name was, the lady you know who gets on the phone and she's practically choking her dog, and they're attacking me, you know, they have this. I mean, she knew exactly what she was doing. She knew she was weaponizing, you know, his color. Yeah. Um, and again, yeah. thinking about the older black people who were in, you know, in the that part of town, you know, they're probably, you know, they would have been aware of things like Tulsa yeah. and the, you know, the community oh, that yeah. got ransacked in Florida and New York. And, you know, the yeah. list just goes on and on. And that, that would have been really, re that, that would have been quite real for them. Yeah. And that left it that left an indelible mark on your mother I, I would probably say in a lot of ways that that changed the course of her life yeah it did yeah she just couldn't let it go it just it just ran completely counter to everything that she knew and believed and what she was taught in church and you know and uh, as a presbyterian and she just said you know we were hypocrites you know we're teaching love thy neighbor as thyself and you're doing unto these you've done the least of these thy brethren and she says and we weren't doing that yeah, and I caught that in the film. That's one of the things that really got to me when she started to recite certain, you know, when you can recite a scripture and then yeah. compare it, that's what she was doing. That's what she was doing, and she was doing it as a child. So yeah. it was it was really crazy. And then when she went on to sing the song, Jesus loves the little children, all the little children of the world, red and yellow, mm -hmm. black and white, they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world, except for the black ones. So, you know, it, it just, yeah. that's, that's literally how it hit her. And I could see it because then she turned around and said, well, maybe I just take things too literally. Right. And I'm like, okay, so now I have a white mom and I'm in love because she literally came off and said that she was like, yeah, I, I just kind of take things too literally. I take things literally. Mm -hmm. And, and how else are you going to take it? You can't tell me that this is this is what it means but it only means this for certain things or for certain people right. and she caught that as a child and i thought that was awesome yeah yeah so, sometimes uh, i got her in trouble sometimes uh, <laughs> you know it helped her out tremendously um, yeah but yeah at the end of the day it was you know we need to you know uh if we're taught certain principles like you know life liberty and the pursuit of happiness and and all those sort of things that we should all be practicing that and she just obviously just said you know that's just not what it was and and she loves the south um she actually refused to marry someone because he wanted to leave the south he wanted to move to, to new york and she's like i ain't i ain't leaving there uh, <laughs> so she wanted to make the south the best that it could be you know the best qualities of the south you know and do away with segregation and jim crow 
Wow. Well, we have a we have a good quick question for you from Elizabeth Torres. Um, I'm gonna it's a kind of a long question, so I'm gonna boil it down. Right, she was yeah. she's curious about where the term black quarters came from in the Georgetown. Um, did that have anything to do with slave quarters, or that was just what that community was referred to as? Um, you know, it's interesting. It's it's uh, I think it's what the community referred to it as. So actually, when we were down there shooting, uh, thank Elizabeth for this question. It's a great question. I, I'm very curious myself. But uh, so we actually ran into people who knew my great my great grandmother, and could point out exactly where the house would have been and these sort of things. And, and, and we're actually standing there talking to this one gentleman whose car he was pulled up, you know, in the middle of the road type of thing, and was telling us this stuff. Well, then I said, well, we better get out of the road. Here comes another car. He goes, oh, that's just my brother. He's being nosy. This is a really old guy. And so finally I just said, you know, and this is like this is very cordial conversation. We're having this, you know, we're, we're talking about, you know, family stories. He goes, actually, yeah, I, I actually traded a, traded a motorcycle for some raccoons with your, you know, with my mom's cousin, right? I mean, it's this crazy sort of funny stuff. And then I said, well, hey, we're trying to find where the Black Quarters was. Where's that at? And by this time, his brother had shown up, the nosy brother, right? And, and when, th when, when that happened after the introductions, I said, well, actually, we're looking for the Black Quarters. Can you point us where those were? And suddenly, the conversation just completely changed. Like, well, you know, hey, have a nice day. We hope you guys have a great visit. And they were gone. Wow. I mean, just that quick. They didn't even want to talk. Wow. Yeah, it was striking. And there's a gentleman there, African-American gentleman, who... Um, it's about my age, and he he pointed out to where it was, uh, but would not take us back there. And he was like, "Yeah, black people in the woods don't work out well here." And eventually, he did. Once I found where the entrance was, and I had I had walked back in and you know back into this area where I thought it could have been, and um, I was walking back and just just like. You know, my gosh, I'm just not finding anything. I was like, man, we came all this way. I really want to find, you know, find an old road or something like that. I mean, I kind of knew the indications of what, you know, from watching old Indiana Jones films and stuff. Okay, I think I could figure out, like, you know, where this might fit. Uh, and uh, and so I was just like, yeah, I stopped and prayed and turned around. And my view was very clear at that point of going, I was actually walking on the on the road. That was all heard over and grown over and everything else, but you can see where the indentation would have been. So I, so I followed that out and came out to the spot on the railroad tracks, which actually was across from where this new road had turned and stopped at the tracks. And so when I found, you know, we went back and found the gentleman and said, well, can you tell me if this is the spot? And he goes, yeah, this is, this is actually the spot. And he walked into the woods with us and, uh, you know, just short distance and started pointing out where people's houses used to be your journey woods and railroad tracks they're, they're just, they just that metaphor always keeps keeps popping up you just said something really evocative and i can't let that go without asking a follow-up question go ahead i know where this is going what do you think the gentleman meant about woods black people and not ending terribly well oh getting getting lynched okay oh yeah so it no, wasn't no, it wasn't so it wasn't fear of haunting spirits or anything else. It literally was just the history. I, I think there, there might have been a little bit of that. I mean, I don't want to get too superstitious. Oh, you can. Let me I don't want to project on that gentleman. Um, okay. Fair enough. But, Fair enough. but definitely. We believe. <laughs> yeah, there is an element of that. 
Yeah, we, we believe. I mean, we we have gone through our own, both Brian and I have both written books and we've gone through our own overall journeys as far as family members and ancestors who really guiding us and, yeah. and talking with us and, and everything. So a spirits coming out and saying something, uh, saying, yeah, go ahead and do this. You, yeah, we believe. Oh, I no, mean, I just from your praying, you praying. Yeah, it, it has everything to do with it because it's only allowed through him. It's, it's right. for you right. know somebody like me. It's it's only allowed through him. So if that's the case, and and you're praying, you're already talking to them, and you're yeah. already they're already going to, you know, make their their presence known and make their feelings known. So I'm I'm yeah, we're believers. <laughs> right on, right on. Hey, yeah, I I, I just think in particular it was. From a historical standpoint um, yeah and also that's the second incident where you've tried to find a black cemetery and really weren't able to to find what you were looking for and right. i have my own thoughts about that i'm sure john will have her thoughts that, wasn't our a black audience. Cemetery. that was a black town that was the town though. that was the yeah. town yeah that was the black for the town. oh that yeah. was the whole town that was the whole town that was gone that was a logging town so they actually when the when the logging mill closed, they actually took the town with them. Okay. So yeah, so there but was still, another black quarters, which was still separated from the white main white part of town, and it was you know those sort of things. But uh, no, that old black quarters, not at all. It was completely gone. I mean, a whole town is gone. Wow. Actually. With nothing to mark that it. <laughs> right. <laughs> Ryan, your uh, your thing is your sound is messing up again. <laughs> so while Brian is trying to fix his sound, um, I want to get into after Selma, and I want to talk more. Um, so after Selma, spoiler alert: after Selma is a uh, documentary about voting, and basically talking about um what it took for them to go across that bridge and how what voting how the voting has now changed um loki did an excellent job by showing showing comparisons for the voter id the gerrymandering um the voter fraud just the how they're closing polls this film was done in 2019 i want to know like what made you actually want to go into doing something like that um well, so I had met Joanne Blackman Bland probably a couple of years before that. And um, she, yeah, she, uh, it was interesting. So we, we were, I was actually on a project where we were going basically a civil rights tour and capturing that for this education company called Studies Weekly here in Utah. And um, it was on the anniversary, it was around the anniversary of the, um, uh, the James Meredith March. And so we knew that there's going to be a large congregation of, of Mississippi civil rights workers and stuff in, in Jackson. So let's 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 fly to Georgia, get some stuff there, and drive out to um, to Jackson and uh, make a grand tour of Little Rock and, and, and Memphis and the, all these different places. So uh, we knew we wanted to get the Edmund Pettus Bridge and get some interviews with people who had marched on the Edmund Pettus Bridge that was there. Um, there's the museum that was there, and and this name kept popping up, which was Joanne Bland. And I couldn't get her to answer the phone and do an interview. And, and she, 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 you know, come to find out also wasn't, you know, had a history 
like Luvons. Um, and so it was very not, you know, just uh, very apprehensive about, you know, white people. You know, why do you want an interview? What's, the, what's this about? Um, and so we get there and, and, and we're doing these interviews with this other group of people. And then I said, well, hey, is it, what about Joanne Bland? Is she around? Oh yeah, she lives right up the road. Let me give her a call. So we came over and I sat down at the table, you know, in her, in her, just in her dining room and, or in the kitchen table. And, and well, what do you want an interview for? What about this? What about that? And these sort of things. And I'm just like, oh gosh. So finally I just pulled out my, my business card, which has my mother's mugshot. So this is my card for my foundation. And, but it has my mom's you know, Freedom Rider mugshot. And I put that across the table and she's like, well, your mom was one of the Freedom Riders? I'm like, yeah, sure. All right, you're, you're okay. We can do this. I'm like, all right. And then come to find out that Joanne's sister is also a member of Delta Sigma Theta you know, Sorority Incorporated. So that, you know, that helped because my mom is also a Delta. Um, so now uh, fast forward, you know, a couple of years later, and I, I really wanted to do a film about Joanne. Her story is very riveting. Um, and ended up that she doesn't want to tell her story to that extent. But I said, well, what if we did it about voter suppression? Um, and I had read Carol Anderson's book, White Rage, and, and one person, no vote. And so I said, well, what if we did that and, and have some of the, the town be a representation of what's been going on? Because all too often, you know, we see the movie Selma, and wow, Selma looks really like a nice little town. Well, it's, it's not anymore. But we, you know, we've, we, and, and we've trapped ourselves in this idea of what Selma should look like, um, along with voting rights. Well, you know, the Selma Montgomery March in 65, and shortly thereafter is the, you know, um, Voting Rights Act. So clearly everyone can vote. Well, no, it's, it's just like Selma has decayed, so is our right to vote. Um, and so uh, that's, that's how that came to be. And I wanted to make sure I had it out. So, uh, you know, one year before the 2020 election, um, so people can understand, you know, what's, what's, what's at stake. Yes. So actually, this has been a sad couple of days for your family. I mean, they've lost three sure. major civil rights leaders within, well, two days. Two days. So right. Reverend, you know, Reverend Vivian, um, John Lewis, and I can't remember her first name, but Mrs. Saunders. Right. Um, so literally three. So it must be a sad weekend for your family. Yeah, we, uh, we just, um, actually just in early March, was it early March? Uh, we were there with, with with John and Joanne and Ruby Bridges and, and such uh, on the bridge. We were actually did a ceremonial march to the top of the bridge. They don't go all the way anymore, but that was the last march he did on that bridge. Wow. And, and so to be able to be there, uh, yeah, Reverend Lawson and such. And it was just uh, it was beautiful. John John was an incredible person. I I didn't know him that well myself. My mom had you know knew him since you know sixty one. Um, but uh, but every time I interacted with John, um, just 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 an incredible individual, and and uh, every time uh, I remember one in particular, <laughs> we were at the 50th uh, commemoration of King's assassination. Uh, we were at Memphis at the Royal Motel and, and uh, the National Civil Rights Museum, and there's this big event going on. Everyone's there: Marion Wright Edelman um, and and uh, Michael Eric Dyson. I mean, everyone's there, right? So uh, young, young and old. And we walk in, my mom's like, where's John? I'm like, I'll, I'll go find him, mom. So, you know, cause I can move a little faster than her and people were stopping to talk to her. So I go and you know, I'm walking up to John and there's John and, um, oh gosh, uh, Bernard Lafayette standing together. And I walk up and, and, you know, John waves me over and takes my hand and pulls me in, says, where's your mother? 
I said, well, hi, John. You know, it's good to see you. She's coming. Uh, so, yeah, so it was always, you know, uh, you know, just, it was always that way. It's like, it's, you know, anytime they would get together or any of the civil rights people get together, it's, it's like a homecoming. Um, so for you, is it, how frustrating is it given what's happening in the here and now? compared to the stories that you heard from these really towering kind of civil rights people back right. in the 60s. How do you feel about that, that we're still having the same arguments, conversations, pushback, police violence, all of that stuff? Uh, you know, it is for us. I mean, well, you know, quite frankly, I mean, they, they were fighting the same fight that was being fought uh, during Reconstruction when African-American men you know, got mm -hmm. the right to vote and that suppression that was taking place and, and you know, and then the, the work that was being done uh, against lynchings in the early 1900s in particular um, and, and Red Summer and stuff. So, um, you know, uh, with Ida B. Wells and, 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 the, and then also the formation of NAACPs at that time. So there's always a fight going on. And so, my gosh, man, when are we, when are we ever going to get past this? But also what you're seeing is that with this you know, every time you make a couple steps forward, there's going to be that reaction, that white lash that takes place, and and we're seeing that, which is means that we've made some progress. You know, uh, this is all a response to Obama. Let's just be honest, and it's a response to the fact that the country is getting browner, um, and that there's this realization that you know actually things are changing and they have to change, and the status quo cannot stay the same, and and uh, you know. It, it's it's also very hopeful. That's one of the things I've heard as well is that the response, even though there's this negative on you know, Ahmaud Aubrey and Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and, and, and then the voter suppression and all these things are taking place, but that the fact that people are out there um, and particularly the fact that there's a lot of white people out there um, is a very stark contrast to what took place, which means that more, you know, more white people are, are actually becoming more aware that this is, you know, that, that, you know, they're just not putting up with it anymore. And they might've sat on the sidelines and maybe there's just a little bit of that, you know, social media energy out of it, you know, about, Hey, I want to make sure I'm, you know, I'm being seen, but more so people are, are actually, you know, standing up and, and, and standing out instead of standing back. And so. Yeah. And I, fi I find the response to his presidency, to Barack Obama's presidency, really mistaken. I find it interesting because I was living in England pretty much for the entirety of his presidency, except for maybe the last four months. Mm -hmm. And we're talking about a man, and, you know, every president makes mistakes, but he got the economy on track. He started getting Americans jobs. He, you know, kind of made up for the faults of the previous administration. So it's not like he left the country in this disastrous state. Oh, he's black. Um, it's yeah. as simple as that. Okay. I mean, he wore a tan suit for goodness sakes. <laughs> yes, I remember. Right. We we even heard about that in England. <laughs> right. I mean, it's absurd. I mean, it's it's completely absurd. No, no one, no one questions the legitimacy of of, of any other president's you know birth certificate. You know. Yeah. Um, I mean, well, those, okay. those those subtle sort of certain things. There's just you know that's just that's just par for the course. Um, the fact is, is that you know, like Levon says, the uncomfortable truth. We have a black man in our White House. Yeah, you know. he did say that. <laughs> um, our and, White House, you know. Yeah, and 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 the thing is, is that you made a comment just earlier, and you said that you know, 
um, we're always fighting this fight and so on and so forth. And you like, but you're like, now we're hopeful about it. But this fight is not the first time we fought it, you know? And so what, what makes you feel like it's, it's different now? Because I actually agree with you. I do feel like this fight seems different than the the earlier ones but what what is your what do you think makes it different well well, well for one we have to recognize a couple of things so one and, I, and I've, I've had I, I said this on stage once with my mom at, you know, I think it was Washington State and you know my mom and I we speak you know a lot you know on, on events and things we get you know asked to come into a screening of the film and speak whatever else and I was you know it's like I'm, I'm gonna throw a zinger at my mom and see how she responds I've been working on this for a while and we're sitting there on stage <laughs> you know, the panelists and so forth, you know, the moderator. I said, well, you know, the civil rights activists took care of the easy stuff, you know, the low-hanging fruit, but they never actually took care of the foundation of racism. My mom was like, oh, <laughs> I was like, oh, my. Um, and uh, later on, she was like, all right, now explain that to me. I said, well, there's, and, and that's actually what ends up in, in the film, The Uncomfortable Truth, is that we've never actually taken care of this foundation of racism. So now you took care of the important outward manifestations, which psychologically and physically and everything else are, 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 are vital in regards to the, the buses and the lunch counters and the, you know, water, you know, the, the, the water fountains and those sort of things. Um, all of those things are, are vital and obviously voting rights and these, 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 these important things. And I don't wanna, you know, I'm not downplaying at all, um, but that foundation still remained, which allowed, you know, that new structure to be built, the colorblind society, you know, now you have the war on drugs and the mass incarceration and school prison pipeline and all these things um, to maintain the status quo, just to, just to, to rewrap that. Um, now, having said that, uh, you know, this is, this is a journey, you know, someone says, well, when did the civil rights movement start? I'm like, you know, and someone will always say, well, in 1955, I'm like, okay, well, no, it, it, it started, you know, at the very beginning, right? Um, uh, you know, we could say it started 1619, right? Um, but the, the fact of the matter is, is that we're, we've always been on this, 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 this journey and, and you have flashpoints, you have moments. So the civil rights movement is a great example because most people will point to well, in 1954, you had you know the, the uh, Brown versus Board of Education, and then 1964 is the Civil Rights Act. Right. In between all that's ten long years. In between that, you had these momentous you know moments. Right. Um, you know the March on Washington. You know, you, know, you name it. Right. Uh, well, th those those were these highs and lows that would take place, but the work was always going through. Right. Um, so the the Voting Rights Act didn't suddenly just all right, let's just have, you know, the Civil Rights Act, excuse me, didn't just suddenly just because, no, let's just have one. No, the, they were putting in that work since, you know, long before 1954, because they've, mind you, they've had several civil rights, you know, bills and stuff before that, but this one was very different and changed a lot. Um, and so now we, so now we're here today, right? Um, and there's always been that continual fight, but what's, what's different, just for me, just besides just the people, there seems to be the energy in that, it's not going away. Now we're not going to hear about it a lot on the news, but people are more organized. Um, they're not just social media warriors and you know, social media water, warriors anymore. They're actually oh. doing concrete stuff. And as you continue to do that, when the next flashpoint hits, which it will, 
there will be another Ahmad Aubrey or George Floyd. There will be something, right, where people will be, you know, will 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 rise up in larger numbers. But now we'll also have things in place, policy, you know, actionable items in place to to execute on that, which we're seeing now. Like, I mean, I, I did an interview the other day, and they were like, "Well, what do you think about defunding the police?" I said, "I think it's brilliant." The very fact that we're even having a conversation about that means it says everything. Now, you know, so I mean, it's it's now whether you whether you agree with defunding the police or not is a different thing, and, and what you think that means. And some people are like, "This is a really bad messaging, you know, marketing message." But mm -hmm. guess what? It makes you think. Right. Well, it certainly makes you go and do some research because I had never heard the right. term before. I googled it and began to find out more about it. Right. <laughs> Excuse well, me. Enough track, maybe I don't know. But <laughs> so you actually made you actually made a, a really good subtle point that I'm going to expound on just a little bit. This is not America's first rodeo. This isn't even the first road, you know, civil rights rodeo, even within the last hundred years. No. So I mean, we have things like John Brown's attack on Harper's Ferry, the the whole abolition. I find Americans are very good and very skilled and adept at compartmentalizing and putting things in silos right. and then not connecting the dots. Right. So we have John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry. We have the Quaker abolitionists. Then we have a whole series of slave rebellions. I mean, Matt Turner, Matt was, Turner. Fighting, was fighting for his civil rights, plus everyone else who was like him. Right. Uh, Donnie and I have ancestors who, or family members, who were killed, who, mm -hmm. who literally died in the 1800s just to be able to vote. Mm. And they yeah. were literally shot on the side of the road, a dusty road, and left there like dogs. Right. Or, or they were um, actually taken to trial for because of an overall riot. So you have, it, it's mm. like, it's, it's a whole slew of things, but that's a story that I can send to you because that's yeah. a crazy <laughs> one. Yeah. But um, it's, it's, you know, it, it, we've 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 seen it. We've now. I guess the thing about genealogy is that it allows you to see that part of history that you've missed. And you know, you've all you're always taught a certain thing in history. And as African Americans, we don't see us in right. history and in, in the American history. And then I can remember talking to some family members when they were asking me questions because Brian and I always get asked questions and things of that nature. And one person came back and she was like, um, yeah, we don't we don't get to um, hear our history and, and we don't get to know our history. And I'm listening to them say this. And I said, yes, you do. <laughs> and they were like, what do you mean? And then I explained to them that I'm, I'm a great, 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 what, a three times great grandniece of the man who beat the abolitionist Charles Sumner on the Senate floor. That was my <laughs> uncle that did that. So guess what? That was my family that I was learning about. But because they don't go into all of history and only tell you parts of it, because truth be told, they don't even say his name, or at least they didn't right. say his name when they were teaching it. Because I think you and I are about the same age. Mm -hmm. And um, they didn't even say his name in school. All we knew was Charles Sumner. We didn't know who the man was that beat him. Right. So, well, you know, it's, it's that kind of stuff. Yeah. And, and, and with that genealogy in particular, I mean, it, it creates that personal connection hmm. uh, for all of us that makes it very real. And that, you know, and again, it's, it's, it's like you're saying with this, you know, LeVon Brown actually doesn't like the term black history. Don't either. 
He prefers <laughs> the black experience in American history. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, because all too often here, at least in the States, black history begins, you know, some sort of, you know, it only begins when it's in America, as if, as if black people didn't exist in Africa, right? Mm -hmm. And there's no history there. Um, but that the black experience in American history and, and all too often the way we see history, at least in the States, is these two parallel tracks um, that, you know, that, that aren't actually on the same, even on the same plane. So you have white history, which is what we're taught, and then black history. It's like, no, no. Uh, for us it's to completely, really truly understand how all this fits together. Because like, look, I mean, <laughs> believe me, white people really struggle to understand how they fit into slavery which is shocking, you know, slavery exists, but they don't see themselves as part of that equation. Those are just those sort of people, you know, you know, you know, white slave owners, but that's not me. And they can go, well, I never owned any slaves. Well, yes, but there's this deeper connection of going, I, they don't see white people actually involved in all the bad parts of history, right? Um, and so by, by, by putting those pieces together, and that's what we do in the film, The Uncomfortable Truth, is by using family history, we're able to see you know, all these touch points throughout of how we're fitting in, um, right. and just how interconnected all of us are um, right. in that history. And, and I get, bring, go ahead, Brian. I was just gonna re um, comment to what you said, Donia. I kind of get why non-white history isn't incorporated in American history. It's because the history of non-white people is like a scud missile to the myth of American exceptionalism. Oh, yeah. So you have, you know, black history, Chinese Americans who built the railroads, you have what happened to the Japanese, then you have Spanish speaking people in the southwestern part of the state and west coast and what happened to them and it just goes on and on and on so that's why it's not included. But that doesn't make any sense to me because those railroads and, and I guess I'm getting ready to start sounding like your mother because literally speaking, <laughs> those railroads didn't just appear there. You understand what I'm saying? They weren't, right. they didn't just happen. You need to tell me how I got, how how all of a sudden the B&O railroad popped up and we're riding across it. That doesn't, it, it really doesn't make any sense. I've always liked history. I liked history when I was in school. I was one of those, those nerdy type people that would like stuff like that. But I yeah. also yeah. always knew that something was actually missing. I always knew that this didn't happen without something else going on. And it wasn't until I started doing my research that I saw the other stuff that was going on in order for me to understand the rest of history. And in my opinion, American history as a whole is beautiful because all of those things happen. Because, I mean, I, I, I don't get me wrong, I hate slavery, but in the midst of that slavery mm. came giants, both black right. and white. You know what I'm saying? And all colors. No, I, yeah, I, I, there was a, um, I was at a, a conference Gosh, probably about three years ago, it was the Association of African American Museums, AAAM conference. It was in DC. And an African American lady came up to me about my age. And, you know, and, you know I had a booth there, my mom's information, you know, our foundation, right? And, uh, and, and so she said, you know, uh, one, one, she, you know, thanked me, but I knew she was really thanking my mother. Um, 
but she then said, you know, when I was going to school, when I was in elementary school, I was the only black kid in my class. And when we talked about, when, when the topic of slavery came up, everyone looked at me. And, mm. said, and that's all I ever saw myself as. You know, that right. was all I thought we amounted to. Um, it wasn't, you know, the Sojourner Truths and the Harriet Tubman's and such. It right. was just, you know, just people who were enslaved, less than, right? Right. Is how she saw it, um, and even 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 though her parents might have taught her something different, I mean the impression of the, of the authority figures in school, what you're reading in your textbooks, and plus kids don't listen to their parents anyways, uh, your classmates. <laughs> now the thought that came to my mind when I was speaking with you know with her was, if that's how she saw herself, imagine how her white students, her white peers saw her. But see, right. but like Levon said, and mm -hmm. it because you you and Levon had this conversation on the podcast, and and I agree with him on the podcast. We don't know our history, right? So what you making the comment of well depended upon what her family. I told you I was hollering at the screen when I was why because I had it on my, <laughs> I had it on my on my Roku TV while I was doing some other work. But I was I was like right Levon right because we don't know we we really don't know our history. We don't know sure. enough for our families to actually teach it. My children are 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 lucky because I am doing what I'm doing and they can go to school or when they were going to school, whoop, whoop, um, that they, you know, they could say, well, you missed this part. Mm -hmm. You didn't say this part or you didn't do this part because my mom taught me this. Right. So they have that, but so many of our, you know, families, my mom is 83. She didn't know a lot of the stuff that I've taught her now. Yeah. No, well, you know, and the fact of the matter is, is, I mean, and there's this, you know, uh, you know, assumption amongst white people that, well, of course, black people know black history, right? I mean, the only reason we're learning this is so white people can hear it. And it's like, well, my response to that is, well, how much, you know, what are you? And they're like, well, I'm Irish. Okay, well, how much Irish history do you know? Right. But I don't know any. Okay, so why would you expect a black person to know, you know, the history of Africa or the history of the black experience here in America? Uh, you know, just just out of, out of default, you know? It's right. Just, it's, it's, just, it's just absurd. But it's also a reflection of our education system mm -hmm. and how that plays. I I, I was um, gosh, I wish I I always forget the name of the it was a, college, it was a university in Baylor, that's in Indiana, right? So Indiana. Um, so I was speaking at Baylor University and had a group of college students and this massive whiteboard, right? And I said, you know what? Let's do a quick test. Start naming famous famous people in history. The famous people. Let's go, right? So the George Washington was the very first one. I'm like, oh, okay. So I wrote George Washington. And, you know, I look back and they're like Beyonce. I'm like, Beyonce, all right. We went from George Washington to Beyonce, but okay. I, I didn't I didn't qualify this. All right. So let's go. By the time we finished up like two or three of these panels, we took a look at it, and 70% of the people on the board were white right. men. Yep. And I said, you know, now interestingly enough, you know, obviously we know that you know women you know, make up half the population, but yet 70% are white men. And the fact that I didn't say US history, but that whites are also minority in this world what does that have to tell you you know so that we're centering in this whiteness but that by the time you graduate from high school white people should feel really really good about themselves and that there creates this false sense mm -hmm. without even having to say it of superiority because yeah, superiority. that's yeah. all you that's all you've heard that's so you're instantly elevated 
Um, and that's why I think it's so hard for people, you know, for white people to hear this, you know, any, what they think is, you know, some, I've been accused of rewriting history. And I'm like, that's right. I'm writing it back to what it should have been. If you know what, if you know the history to begin with, but the idea that someone but a white person would have invented something mm -hmm. is, 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 it becomes just, you know, most people politely won't say anything about it. But in their in their heart, they just that tension builds up, and it's like, well, wait a second, why? You know, it, it just blows their mind. But as Donnie and I always say, there's room enough for everyone's history to right. be covered to be covered in history classes. Yeah. Now, you, because um, one of the things that really irritates me is the whole "I don't see color, I'm colorblind." <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. I am I am 12th generation American. Whether that's you look well, Native American is going to go beyond that, but just you know, white and black ancestry, twelfth American. Right. I wear my skin color like a badge of honor because I come from twelve generations of enslaved. Not all of my African ancestors were enslaved; some were free, but the bulk of them were enslaved. I come from twelve generations of enslaved survivors. They right. were tough, mentally tough, physically tough, spiritually tough, and for me to deny this is right. to deny 12 generations of everything that they went through. And I'm still arguing about that with my white classmates. Well, we don't want to see color. I'm like, well, then you're dismissing a large part of my heritage. Right. Yeah. You know, to not see color is just a, you know, it's, it's just a way of, it's, it's, I mean, it's the white way of saying I'm not a racist, but obviously it's the wrong way to say it. Um, it, 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 it you know, it's, it's, it's this dismissal of, you know, it's it's the gosh. I had I had this conversation today with this guy. <laughs> it was, I mean, it was it's the I have a dream, right? It's the I'm not going to judge you by the color of your skin, just by the content of your character. Well, that that sounds beautiful, right? I said, now what did what what else did Dr. King say that day? He's like, what? I said, ah, oh, okay. Well, you know about the debt that was due, right? He's like, what? <laughs> like yeah, go 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 read the rest. You won't you won't be quoting Dr. King anymore. Trust me. Yeah. Um, but 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 this idea that you know this this colorblind society where every every you know look we've arrived. You know I think as we say that in the film. You know slavery ended. You know Dr. King had a dream and Obama was elected president twice. You know congratulations right. you've arrived. Um, you know we are we are now just a colorblind society. Um, but the fact of the matter is is that by not seeing by, by claiming you don't see that color, what you're really not seeing as well are the struggles and, and the issues that still exist today that are associated with color. And so you put on these blinders um, and it, 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 it sounds good, but it's just a euphemism. Um, so I want to go real quick because the show is almost over. So okay. I want you to um, really talk about your foundation and so people can know more about it. Oh, all right. Yeah. So the, the foundation is the Joan Trump Power Mulholland Foundation. Uh, it's a mouthful. And that's my mom. She said I didn't ask permission. I was like, no, I'll just ask forgiveness. It's easier. Uh, <laughs> we, we, ex we, we exist to end racism through education. That, that's our goal. We do this through the films. We have a curriculum that we do. We use as well. The podcasts, all those things add to this continual education. Um, and, and, and so that's 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 the space that we sit in and, and part of it's telling my mom's story and the story of the civil rights movement in general and part of it's things like 
voter suppression that we have. Uh, we have a film that we haven't released yet that's called, uh, it's about the Evers family. So Medgar Evers and his family is the first of the civil rights leaders that was assassinated. Um, I'm finishing up a film on Emmett Till. Um, I'm waiting for that one. Yeah, I hear that a lot. I'm looking forward to it as well. <laughs> Hopefully I'll be able to watch it. I'm, I'm waiting for that one. Yeah. I'm such a sucker for kids, but yeah. yeah. Yeah, and so so and so we um so yeah that's what we do and, and and part of what we have is a campaign that's called a million students for change where we're working to provide curriculum on the civil rights movement and how kids can make a difference, um, you know in their world change their world, um, and we do that through a sustainer model kind of like an NPR you know NPR model even you know five dollars a month can provide curriculum for thirty students, um, and we're already I know we're over thirty thousand at this point I just have to that's fine. Is yeah. um what I would like for you to do is send me the link to that so yeah. we can put it in the um yeah. in the comments because I forgot to get that from you. But oh, if you send J jtmfoundation.org. I can write it in right now. Yeah, jtmfoundation.org. Get you right there. Um because again, that's been the beautiful thing in terms of my genealogical experience is again meeting cousins of different races. Um kind of finding out that we have some set some family quirks that are the same yeah. <laughs> which is always kind of always kind of nice to to kind of find out yeah. but just that kind of cultural exchange like explaining to some white tennessee cousins what the talk black parents have right. to have with their children right. that, that that really is a thing um kind of the script that we have to use and that just blows their mind mm -hmm. right that, you know you can actually see and i can actually see them sitting there just letting letting the wheels turn and just kind of a, yeah. absorbing that that's a reality for people. Yeah. yeah. And we assume that that people understand that would know that. I mean, gosh, if you live in America and you watch the news, you, you clearly you've heard about the talk, right? <laughs> as a white person, right? I mean, it's like, come on, everyone knows this, right? And there's a frustration level that comes with that as well. How do you not know this? How do you not know this history, right? Um, and yet, clearly, that's the case that a lot of people just don't know it, black or white. And just just because it's just because the internet exists, doesn't mean you know. And every every last bit of information is on there, you know, that, that we know that we, that we know it, or that we're drawn to it. Um, a lot of people are just trying to live their lives, you know, pay their bills. I I, I use the example of look. I mean, do, do either one of you know how to strip an engine on a car? I used to. I'm, I would be. A, I would be. No, nah, I, I don't get my fingers dirty. That's it. Uh -uh. Well, why not? Because the fact of the matter is, is that that exists on the internet. You can go to YouTube right now and find videos about how to strip an engine. So technically, you should already know how to do that. And that's kind of the argument that's made. Well, how do you not know about this? It's like, well, guess what? You know, I don't care to know about stripping an engine. And if 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 racism is not in the forefront of my brain, which is amazing that it's not, you know, for people. I mean, there's like, you know, the, what are the things we're never supposed to talk about, right? You know, sex, money, and politics, you know, right. and throw in religion, and then now it's also throw in racism. We're never supposed to talk about it. But yet these are the social constructs um, in particular that impact our lives on a daily basis, and we should be talking about that and should be comfortable talking about it and having these open conversations, but giving people a space, also a willingness to learn and to grow and to make mistakes. I'm sure I said something today that probably people are going, oh my gosh, did he just say that? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm human and I'm a white guy. I mean, good grief. Um, you know, we're, we're, gonna, we're gonna make mistakes along the way and we gotta be willing to allow people 
to learn and grow from that. And some people don't want to learn. Some people don't want to grow. And, you know, you just, okay, I'm, I'm looking for those who want to, who want to change. Well, as, a, as, an, as an almost closing question, mm -hmm. do you think Americans like to have things easy in terms of, because growth, I would almost say proper growth should be uncomfortable. It should make you feel uncomfortable. Some of my best growth moments in life have been challenging really deep, hard-held beliefs. Yeah. And I'm, op I'm open to that. But do you think that that's part of the, part of the American problem is Americans don't like that? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if it's an American problem. I mean, you know, I mean, at least at least based on the narrative that I know, I mean, we expect to America, you know, we've always rolled up our sleeves and gone to work and rah, 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 and, you know, and those sort of things. Uh, but, I, I, you know, and, and I don't want to discredit people today going, you know, just because we've got the internet and, you know, and everyone's got their phones and they're constantly looking at it, that we're just lazy playing video games and whatever else. Um, you know, we work hard. I mean, we, we are the hardest working, you know, you know, we work more hours on, in the first world country than anywhere else. Anywhere oh, no, else. no doubt about that. But in but, terms of doing like deep introspective work and like on the topic. Yeah, you know, yeah, it's, it's yes. I, I, I think it, it takes a lot of work and a lot of time and a lot of passion. Um, you know, it's easy to go to church for, you mm. know, for an hour or two a, a week. It's a lot harder to read your scriptures every night. Mm. Right? Um, and so it's it's you know that's what that's what that's what cliff notes were made for right you know i've got a right honestly that's why i did the film no, nothing i did in the film is is new i mean i even i actually even show all my sources at the beginning of the film here's all the books i used people ask yeah, me what did. books did you use i'm like did you watch the film um because no one wants to read that sort of stuff i should right. say no one I, mean, I did i mean there's plenty of people who do <laughs> But for the general audience who's just dipping their toe into things, um, this is the first step. And that's what the film was designed for, was to give them that entry point where they don't feel they're being attacked um, because it's telling my story, you know, um, and along with Luvon's, but it's cushioned. And that, that opens up that exploration for wanting to look at deeper into things, um, which I've heard from people who have like, wow, you know, and, and I get people who are just like, what, what else should I read? Well, on our website, under the educators tab, we actually have uh, a, a section of like, here's some, here's some suggested reading books and so forth. Wow, that's Brilliant. awesome. Well, we have actually gone over time. And that oh, has, right. <laughs> no, that, that's our fault. I just don't want our producer to have a heart attack. <laughs> so I, I want to thank you. Yeah. Yes, Go ahead, thank, Brian. I was just going to give you um, just a quick thank you so much for joining, joining the show and dropping your knowledge and speaking so freely. Donia? Yeah, I wanted to say the same thing and just to remind everybody to definitely um, go to the jtmfoundation.org, watch on Amazon Prime An Ordinary Hero after Selma, Black, White, and Us, and The Uncomfortable Truth, and listen to the podcast because it continues The Uncomfortable Truth. It continues it on, and um, it I'll be screaming at the, at the TV when you're doing your podcast, as, as always, and um, if you can stay on when we go off, I would love to talk more with you if you can just for a few minutes. Oh, sure. um, but I want to thank everybody for being on, for watching us, for following us. And um, I think this is our last show, right? Our last live show, right? Our last, our, yeah, our last live one. 
So that brings season three to a close. And thank you all for sharing what we've been doing and videos and your comments and your questions. And we will, we'll, we'll let you know when season four starts. It'll probably be September. Right. So thank you guys. We'll see you guys like soon. Take care. Bye. Okay. Sorry, Afiba. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.